All right, guys, welcome back to the show. We are here with the one and only Matt Higgins. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, like I said, we haven't had a shark here on before, so we're very excited to have you have you on here. I hope I represent well. I'm excited for this yeah. honor being the first. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people see the show for what it is, but they don't really know what happens behind the scenes, what really goes on. So, you know, I'd love to pick your brain a little bit about what happens. Well, that was always my big question. I, I've been a huge fan of the show. Uh, yeah. I've watched practically every episode, and I would watch it with my son. Uh, mm. th- he could care less about sports or any of the other things I do uh, in a given day. But yeah. like so many kids in America, he is obsessed with Shark Tank. Mm. And it's actually a phenomenon. I don't know the number, but it's one of the highest uh, watched shows of parents with their kids. It just spans generations. Right? Right. And so uh, I've always been a fan. And uh, it's something I always wanted to be a part of. A little bit delusional on my part. I remember turning to my son one day after watching an episode. I said, I think I'm going to be a shark. He's like, yeah, good luck with that, Dad. <laughs> I was like, no, this is what I do in my day job. I build companies. I invest and whatnot. Right. So it was, a, it was a long journey to find myself on that set. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, last year, they gave me a shot to be a guest mm. shark. And I'd say my first impression is there is no orientation when you step foot on that set. Like right. you, you assume that everybody kind of coaches you a little bit. It's really intimidating. No. <laughs> just, Mark and Kevin or Larry, they, they didn't decide no, to no, help you. No, they're all smiles until it actually starts. And right. I they, you know, you hear 10, 9, 8. I said, whoa, whoa wait a second. <laughs> like, there's been no prep. And then uh, you sit at the end. At least right. I sat at the end uh, next to Laura Guineer. Yeah. I remember the first time I started uh, – for the first minute, I felt like a deer in the headlights. I just kept trying to get a word in edgewise, like, but, but, Mark, uh, uh, Kevin, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, nobody no cares dice. what you have to say. Which no is, so that's authentic, authenticity point number one. It's a legitimate negotiation, and nobody yeah. cares what you have to say. So right, you have right. to sort of muscle your way in. And two, you wonder of how much of it actually looks, uh, at the end of the day, like what you see on TV. Mm. And the reality is it's just an elongated version of what ultimately gets cut down to, say, you know, 15. Amazing. And yeah. is there like an audition process? Because obviously they have a background of what you've done and what you do now, which is you do invest in a lot of companies. Yeah. But how do they know if you're going to be, you know, how they are, how you are on camera or how you're actually going to be, you know, re- being received by the global audience? That, well, that's that a great has. questions. Uh, one, there is no interview process. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people raise their hands and say, I'd love to be a shark. Um, it's a mystery to me exactly how how one makes it through. All I know is I've had multiple, multiple meetings with executives at ABC, Mm. uh, executives at Sony, all of whom have a piece uh, of involvement in the show. But they they treat it like an institution. You know, it's not just a TV show. The money's real. The stakes are high. Entrepreneurs kill themselves to get on. So everything about it is very serious, very prolonged, and very mysterious. Hmm. Uh, But one thing I've come to realize is that they can't possibly predict who's going to perform well uh, once the camera's on. It's right. such an unnatural activity to be yeah. doing a deal against, you know, Cuban and Laurie Guineer and Mr. Wonderful because they've been together like a family for a decade, right? So you come on as a newcomer. I don't care if you run big companies or you do deals all day long. It is incredibly uncomfortable. I, it's definitely the top five most uncomfortable I've been in my life the morning wow. I went on that set. So Sony executives, ABC, they can't predict who's going to do well and who's going to be flat coming out of it. And I'd say the first time I did it was very different than the second time. You know, first time gotcha. I was just playing it safe, trying not to lose. No and kidding. The second, the second time I was like, all right, I got this. <laughs> it is uh, it's definitely un- uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the authenticity of it. Right. That there isn't scripting. There isn't a lot of coaching. So, uh, if, like I said before, whatever level you've achieved professionally, 
this is this will take anybody out of their comfort zone. So yeah. I was proud of being able to do it. Um, just love the act of coaching entrepreneurs and investing in companies. And so once I got settled down, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm quite comfortable here. That's great. We'll do this again. <laughs> and what's the benefit for, well, I guess the guys like Mark, Mark, Kevin, these guys are doing it on a recurring basis. But for a, a guest shark, this is, I don't know if this falls into the general investing portfolio of companies that you guys do. So is it more of the, is it mostly just like a personal branding thing for you guys? Because you guys are investing your money too, right? It's not like a money thing, is it? I, I, having done it, I can't give you a perfect answer to that. Yeah. Uh, one, it's fun to be part of it, right? Of like, course. This definitely falls in a bucket of my life called fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. there's clear advantages. Uh, everyone loves the show, right? This doesn't have a lot of negativity to it. Yeah. Um, it does lead to a lot of deal flow. Naturally. Afterwards, yeah. The part I love the most, though, is if you're on that show and you're at the stage of development that you're at to be on that show and to give mm. up that much equity, you're very early on. You haven't quite figured everything out, right? Yeah. So um, to me, it's it's a lot of hard work. These are these are some of them are fully formed ideas and some of them are half formed ideas. Yeah. Uh, but regardless, there's a ton of work that goes into it. So um, it gets my competitive juices going. Right. I, I take that idea and I wanna I wanna win. I don't know what winning is in this context, but yeah, I believe yeah. it means making a successful company. Sure. And and measuring impact. Mm. I like to think of it, okay, what was the impact before I came along into this entrepreneur's life? How were things different prior to and after? Mm. So that might mean I helped uh, them get distribution at retail that they wouldn't have been able to get without the imprimatur of Shark Tank and yep. my hustle. Or I gave them coaching about how they were scaling their company incorrectly or right. how to tackle. So that's a lot of fun, too. You could take a step back and say, wow, I made a big difference in the trajectory of this entrepreneur. And sure. ideally, I made it $1 more than I invested in, ideally even more than that. But right. um, So a lot of levels. But if I'm being perfectly honest, it's just a ton of fun mm. to be part of. Gotcha. And I think the question that everyone wants to know is who's the biggest beauty queen amongst the Shark Tanks? Who's the biggest beauty queen? Like the humble it, thing would be to say me or something. Like, <laughs> beauty queen as in like who's the biggest like diva? Yeah, yeah. diva. Yeah, I'm just gonna put it out there. I feel like it's well, Mr. Wonderful. Question, I'll put it back on you. Would, would it be a good idea to answer that question or a bad idea? Probably not. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like the fallback answer is Mr. Wonderful, but <laughs> yeah, well, well, I will say everyone is from what I've observed. Yeah, everyone is pretty consistent with their persona. Of course. Right? So yeah. Kevin is living his best life. Yeah, and there's no nonsense, and he gets right to the point. Sure, I'd say. Um, uh, Lori is probably the hardest working shark, if I'm being perfectly mm, honest, wow. just because she has done so many deals. Right. She has, you know, this is largely what she does, right? So she she works on these companies. She puts her heart and soul into it, which is admirable. And mm. Not to say the others don't. I just think Lori has done so much. I mean, she has 150 patents uh, throughout the course of her life. But everybody's very consistent. Damon's yeah. guy from Queens who had built a brand from nothing that became a global brand, incredibly smart and driven. Um, so I, I don't have a negative word to say, to be honest, other yeah. than the fact that nobody gave me a lot of coaching and encouragement in those right. first few minutes, but I'm, gotcha. over, I'm over it now. Cool, cool. <laughs> well, I, I really want to get back into your story okay. because obviously you've got a fascinating story of how you started from the age of 16. You ended up dropping out of high school, and I personally resonate with that when I first saw it because I dropped out of university, and it's nowhere near the same level of, I'm sure, what you've had to go through at such an early age. So... Talk to us a little bit about what are some of the events that occurred before you made that decision. And I'd love to know just how you dealt with it, like mentally, just given how, you know, especially back in those days, the negative connotations that came with dropping out. It's not cool or sexy anymore like these days, you know. It's definitely not 
cooler sense no. back in the day. Well, uh, I grew up in Queens, New yeah. York, and product of a you know, broken home. Uh, father left when I was nine. Uh, my mother uh, was a brilliant woman, but a ton of health issues that just would com- compound over time. And she was doing the best she could to take care of four rotten, miserable, selfish boys and try to make something of herself and us at the same time. And uh, from the ages of 10, 11, 12, I would take on all these odd jobs. Uh, I was selling flowers on street corners on holidays, you know, knocking on people's windows, wow. which is better than being a squeegee person, but, but, but like one notch above. Yeah. But, um, and then I was selling handbags on the top of a van at Roosevelt Field Mall Flea Market on the weekends. So all these attempts to kind of piece it together. And uh, by 13, I got my first job at McDonald's working in the play, the party room and would be cleaning the gum off the bottom of the seats. So oh, put boy. Gum. By the way, if there's little kids listening, do not put gum yeah. on the seats because it's very hard to yeah, get I off. I hope you guys but are listening. I yeah, hope you're hit youngins. <laughs> they're, they're like, we don't even do that. We, we vape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old men. <laughs> we don't do gum. Yeah, we but don't anyway, have that. So, so you know, just, I'm just painting a picture, right? Like yeah. We were living in squalor in this uh, you know, rundown apartment in Queens and sleeping on the floor on a mattress, just just a mess. But my mother was doing everything she humanly could to try to get ahead, including going to college. She went and got her GED as an adult. Wow. And actually never talk about this part of the story, so it's important. I watched her get her GED as an adult and go to college. There was always a gap in her self-esteem mm. from ha- having no education, and she was incredibly smart, and she went through a horrendous childhood. Um, and so by the time I had hit 14, 15 years old, I was thinking, like, this isn't going to end well. There's no cavalry. There's no money. We're spending our, our days and nights, you know, in the emergency room using it as health insurance. And uh, school is pointless, like juxtaposed mm. against this urgent need to find a way out of poverty. Uh, going to school while working at a deli on Woodhaven Boulevard in Queens and making $5 an hour is pointless. And I had an epiphany. If I could do what my mother did as an adult inadvertently, but do it on purpose and drop out of high school, Technically, if I could get a very high score on a GED and my SATs, I could go to any college I want, hmm. and I could get, a, get to college quickly. And by having a college job, I mean a college degree, yeah. I could get a higher-paying job. So that was, my, that was my epiphany and my decision. Whoa. So then I just decided to become a true, total juvenile delinquent, got left back three years in a row, and would get picked up by the Truman Police at McDonald's and just hauled back in, but I had a plan. Oh my God, yeah. And the guidance counselors knew I had a plan. Everybody said, you're delusional, you know, throw your life away, but mm. it made sense to me. And this is something I tell people all the time. You know, never outsource your judgment to somebody else unless they have full context of your life. Right. And when I was a kid, I was so ashamed of poverty I was living in. I never invited a single human being over my house my entire childhood. Wow. So when I would listen to guidance counselors and so forth saying, you're throwing your life away, you're so smart, you're talented. So, you know, you just, you don't know. Um, but nonetheless, when the moment of truth came, and I actually had to execute, that's when you really question, like, okay, this sounded great on paper, mm. but, but how's this plan going to play out? Did you have a mentor or an advisor that you were able to go to for advice during this yeah, time? it was basically Marlboro cigarettes. That's what I would do. Uh, that was my advisor. <laughs> yeah. I'd smoke a pack or two a day. <laughs> if only you had Jewel back then. Yeah, huh? yeah, right. Kids <laughs> were like, you're an old man. We have Jewel now. No, uh, no, no, I didn't have a mentor or advisor. That's what's interesting, too. When your backup is against the wall is when mm. you get a chance to pressure test your intuition. It's mm. so invaluable. I had nothing and nobody except the general sense that my mother was going to deteriorate and ultimately die under these conditions if I didn't take some steps, right? Yeah. And, but, but nonetheless, the moment of truth was the day I actually had to drop out. And I've told the story a ton of times, but you have to return your textbooks to each, to each class. Oh. I feel bad for Mr. Rosenthal because he was the teacher that I'm about to tell a story about, and I've told it multiple times. But nonetheless, I walk Let's in front of going. the class, 
and everybody's watching me and, and you know, I have a little bit of swagger. I'm like, here's the book. I, you know, you got to return your book. And I remember he said, you know, oh, Higgins, you know, what a waste, right? And, uh, and he, goes, uh, he goes, I'll see you at McDonald's. And I remember I was about oh, to walk man. out and I thought to myself, you know, actually, I can't let that slide. And I said, you know, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I bought it. And everyone's like, ooh. Oh, this is in front of the whole class. The whole class, right? right? Wow. This is a true story. And then I walked out and be like, he's probably right. At the end of the day, like, this is totally insane. And I remember sitting on the steps of Cardoza High School. Every, all, everybody's still in school, right? So now you're a big boy. Yeah. I mean, now you're alone, right? Yeah. And it's weird to be sitting on the steps of a school with permission when, you know, the dismissal bell hasn't rung, right? right and right. I'm alone. I'm smoking a cigarette and thinking, geez, what did I do, right? But I picked myself up. And within, I'd say, probably three, four weeks, I took my uh, GD on standby at Springfield Gardens High School and took my SATs. And by September, I was enrolled in Queens College at 16. Wow. Got a job working for a congressman because I was a college student. Nobody asked how old I was. I looked like I was 12. But I got my first big boy job making, I think it was $9 an hour instead of $5 an hour. How did that work? You just applied randomly? Yeah, it was like, like delivering flyers on a, on a campaign uh, or you know, getting, getting signatures signed for a petition. I forgot the exact fact pattern. But, um, yeah. but nonetheless, was able to get that job. And that's probably the most important chapter of my life, the most important year, because my intuition told me to go against the grain, despite what everybody was saying, including the stigma that I would be a loser. Imagine you're a 16-year-old and you're thinking, how do I overcome that conventional wisdom when objectively it's correct? But nobody knows that if I don't take some moves right now, this desperate situation is only going to get worse. And two, my intuition said, I bet you I can clean this up later. <laughs> like, hmm. like, think about it. If you want to clean up the fact that you were a high school dropout, probably the best thing to do is go to college and then get a graduate degree. Right. And that's when I right. decided around that point, I'll go to law school, even though I don't really want to be a lawyer. I'll <laughs> clean this up later. Who knew you'd be talking about it in a podcast <laughs> now, right? Oh, right, right. <laughs> I kind of knew that too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like you had everything. <laughs> well, you know, there are patterns in life that if you pay close attention, especially, I think one of the benefits of having gone through trauma, there are a lot of downsides, and PTSD is a real thing. Yeah. But one of the benefits, at least for me, is it refines your pattern recognition skills hmm. when, when you're under duress. And I was constantly under duress since I was a little kid. Um, but, but big picture, holistically, taking a step back and looking at that chapter of my life, it was the first time that my intuition told me, go against conviction, convention, and you can find a way out that other people don't necessarily see and they don't endorse. And if right. anything, they'll shame you into not doing. Right. And so everything I've ever done in my life, when I've reached, I thought back to those steps of Cardoza when I had that first insight. My God. Because yeah. you must have gone through similar experiences before you even made the decision to drop out of high school. So this was your way of recognizing certain patterns where you had enough intuition where you felt confident enough to make this decision for yourself. Well, I think part of the part of the that's a great question, by the way, it didn't just happen one day. Right, right. The, the sequence of events, especially when you're a kid and any kid who's been under duress and through a traumatic situation. And there are more details that I don't really talk about publicly. But sure. But um, your first attempt is, can somebody please help me? Right, and you're thinking the system will help, right? You know, mm. and the, the, why isn't anyone intervening? And then you start to get worn down, realize, oh, the system is not going to save you, mm. right? There's nobody, nobody's coming for you, and and I think once that happens, you sort of sever dependency on others and on the system, and you start realizing, oh, my only way out is to rely on myself, and that was a process that took years of time, right? And right. then you take matters into your own hands. And I remember right. I would sit with my mother and I'd have this conversation, like, you know, the cavalry is not coming, like. What are we going to do about this? This mm. is this is we have to take action, and I think I decided at a very early age. I remember the conversation I had with her at the dinner table, saying, "You know what? Going forward, 
I'm going to decide that, that things don't happen to me, but I happen to things. I don't want to live a life where we're completely subject to, you know, the, the winds and, and all these arbitrary acts that we have nothing we can do about, no control over. I'm going to decide yeah. that I'm going to take matters into my own hands, which is yeah. probably a little grandiose for a little kid. But I mean, I, I give you a lot of credit for that because obviously looking back, it's easy, but for s- I mean, I think like one out of a hundred, it's, it's the, it would have been the decision that you made because someone that's in a situation like yourself where single mother and they're, they're financially struggling, you drop out of uh, high school at 16, most people would go into dealing drugs or they would go into doing drugs themselves. And you here you decided to go and really hop over a lot of steps that most people wouldn't even fathom to do. This is a very creative solution in, in itself. So, yeah, I mean, credit yeah, no, to I you. Just, I decided early on, uh, you have two paths. I could be defined by this accident of birth, born into these tough circumstances, or I could yeah. leverage it to get somewhere better. And there is always a reward for, 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 for a tough situation, right? Like mm. uh, That is one thing you could have complete faith in. When you endure any type of trials or tribulation, there's going to be reward at the other end of the tunnel right. if you just endure and you survive it. Gotcha. Right? So the, 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 the reward would be, all right, well, I'm going to accelerate this. Right, and I remember one of the happiest, proudest moments of my life. I, you know, I drop out of high school. You're a loser. You know, working at McDonald's. I did work at McDonald's, which, by the way, was my best job, um, <laughs> McRib sandwiches. But uh, I remember going back to my prom, and at that point I was 17, and I saw all my teachers. Now I'm a college student, and oh, wow. I'm on the debate team. And I remember going up to Mr. Rosenthal, and I was like, "How do you like them apples?" You know, I was dating myself. It's from a movie, but, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, it just it it. It, it was an important point, and I tell people all the time, you have to work on cultivating your inner voice. Mm. We tend to think that the answers are, are outside of ourselves, which doesn't really make sense. The whole mm. notion of intuition is for the times in life when you were not given a manual for what you're about to do. Mm. And I don't know who put it in us, God or, or nature, but we have the answers to a lot of the tests inside of ourselves. But we're conditioned to read, you know, uh, uh, built to last, good to great, tipping point are all wonderful books, but yeah. we're not tend to cultivate that inner voice that tells us which direction we should head in. How do you, what's the advice that you would give to someone that is in that mindset of constantly needing external validation or asking someone else to give them the answers for the decisions in their lives? How did you, I guess reflecting back, how did you um, develop those intuitions yourself or how would you advise someone to, to do that for themselves? I love this question people ask me that too. How do I know my intuition is correct? I was right. right. I always say, um, start with a reach. If the number one way to prove to yourself that your intuition, your inner voice is correct and can navigate you is to reach really far outside yourself to, mm. to, to take a step change, right? So to take a really impossible point on the horizon that's very attenuated and for which is no obvious way you can get there and get there, right? So for me, right. the, the attenuated place was to get into college by dropping out or it was to get on Shark Tank. Or on and on and on. Start with the, it's almost like muscle memory. Once you do it once and you Mm. reach outside yourself, you know, something that's beyond your grasp for which there is no manual. So no book or advice would really matter anyway. And you pull it off. Then you say, oh, it's a little bit like Gary. Gary Vaynerchuk obsesses about this notion of flipping and you know, right. going. I like when he does it because what he's really telling somebody to do is there's arbitrage right in front of your face, right? Like you don't need to have this grandiose business or this, you don't need to scale or create the next Facebook. You could actually just go to a garage sale yeah. and take advantage of the arbitrage about the fact that that person was, was too lazy to go ahead and Google or go on eBay and see what this item is really worth and go flip it. Gotcha. So, so I guess my number one advice is to reach outside yourself, beyond your grasp, and try it once. It sounds mm. kind of convoluted. No. But I believe everybody, and the reason why the reach is important conceptually as opposed to specifically, 
everybody has an area where they've refined their pattern recognition skills that they see something that somebody else doesn't see right. and they have a reach inside of themselves, right? So it could be really small comic books or, 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 or a larger you know, insight, right? But everybody has one. Mine was, wait, mom dropped out of high school because she was in a terrible situation. Mm. She got her GED. And it turns out if you get a high enough score in your GED, technically you can go to Harvard. And it turns out there's no rule precluding you to go to college before you actually, your graduating class graduates. By the way, they changed that. I'd like to think oh, that's they a did. rule, yeah. But anyway, my point is I had a specific special insight that was valid in the situation that unless you had been in my situation, you probably wouldn't have had. Mm. Right? Who the hell has that insight? Yep. Everybody carries those around with you. You carry it around with you right now, you know, from Subway or wherever, you know, from, from your upbringing. Yeah. And so that's my advice to people. Uh, audit yourself and decide what special perspective you have that nobody else has and then reach. Gotcha, gotcha. And a lot of pe a lot of times people don't even know they have that, right? They kind of have to dig deeper and spend the time to think about what are some of the experiences that they have. Because it can be a unique advantage, right? It could be a business idea that nobody else has or an investment that they could have because of previous experiences that they've had. And everybody has them. And I think people who are subjected to rest probably have them a little bit more because they right. usually come to us when our back is against the wall, right? When we're a little mm. anxious or a little desperate, a little scared. So, But everybody has one somewhere in their life that is valuable, actionable, yeah. and sometimes monetizable, right? So mm. that's that's my very convoluted, abstract advice. Where do you play? Where do you place a, just given your own experience and how you've had to figure out a lot of things yourself, where do you play uh, place an importance in terms of mentors and advisors uh, in in specific parts of someone's I, I, life? A hundred percent necessary and valid and great. I think where I deviate a little bit, there's a lot of focus on formality. Like mm. I have a mentor, you know. Yeah, therefore, yeah. I'm I'm making progress, right? To me, yeah. the mentor. Uh, the idea of a mentor is really the cumulative effect of pieces of, of advice from people who know better than you do. Yeah. And so I don't put a, a lot of energy on a mentor as opposed to seeking out mentorship over a fact pattern that I need help with, right? Because mm. it almost implies that there's somebody out there who's got, again, the, the guiding light to get to where you need to go. And it, yeah. it deifies them too much, in my opinion. So I seek mentorship rather than mentors. Yeah. So except for in one area. I think spiritually I have a mentor that has the answers to all tests. And that's my friend Curtis Martin, who's an, who's an NFL player for the Jets. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, fifth all-time running back. Uh, he just has all the spiritual answers. So that's that's somebody I'll actually go to. I'll completely outsource my spiritual judgment to him and ask him wow. what's the right thing to do in this situation. And he just gives you the answer. He just, uh, I, yeah, so anybody else who needs the answers uh, to the test, Curtis oh my God. has them. Why is he playing football? He should be he, just he should not, be just doing not. this full time. He's retired. He's retired, I okay. I say that. When are you going yeah, yeah. to share the gospel with everybody else? <laughs> one of these people I met in life who I will go to. But, yeah. but otherwise, uh, I seek out mentorship. For a specific question, yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the worst things you can do is just to go up to someone that you barely know and just ask them to be your mentor. Like, no, I, well, I get that a lot. People will say, "Hey, can you be my mentor?" And I'm like, "No." Yeah. But if you ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. Right. Right. And right. that's the other thing. I think people do a little bit. Um, they 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 raise the bar to getting help for mm. themselves. Nobody at any level wants to go on a rescue mission because they're also going through, I don't care how successful you are, you're grappling with something. Yeah. You're grappling with trying to get to the next level. You're grappling with a personal issue. Maybe you're going through divorce. So everybody has limited bandwidth. I always say uh, to folks who are looking for advice, 
make it digestible and discreet, like three discreet questions that you need to ask to go to the next place. Right. So by definition, seeking a mentor, you're asking somebody to take custody of your entire being. As yes. opposed to saying, these are the three hurdles I need to tackle next. Can you give me quick advice? Yeah. Like, I tell people, don't ever ask anybody to go to coffee or, you know, I'll take you out for a meal. Like, no, just just ask a question or yeah. two or three that gets you to the next place. Yeah. And anybody at any level will be willing to help you. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the question that I wanted to ask is because I think a lot of people get sidetracked when they're not able to find a mentor because people have always told them whether it's self-help books or you know, the motivational mentors online, they're constantly telling them, find a mentor, find someone that can really help you. So when someone's in a position where maybe they're living in China or India, or or they're just not in a position to find a mentor that can help them, they get extremely disappointed because they think it, without a mentor, they're kind of screwed. Uh, so it's, I think it's amazing advice that you're giving. It's like, you don't need this savior to give you the answers to everything that you want in your life well if anything it's actually not taking advantage of connectivity i mean before instagram how would you have a potential one-to-one relationship with any high profile individual they may not answer your dm but i would argue that if your dm had a very simple question Mm. and you also made it clear i'm only going to ask you this one question or these two questions i had that the other day there was a somebody in india sent me this amazing you could hear from their dm that they were tortured and wow. they were they were they were pursuing a degree in accounting, uh, and they were being kind of pressured into it by their parents. But they knew that their heart was not in accounting, and saying and they felt like the die was cast. You know, and they, mm. this was the equivalent of a death sentence that they had to get a degree oh in accounting. God. And so, but it was one discreet question, and I enjoyed uh, responding, saying, "You'd never regret having an accounting degree." And you're you're 21 years old. It's perfectly fine. Like go mm. through it, get the accounting degree. Be grateful that you have it because now yeah, you know your numbers, and then do whatever you want. And I made the point that when I graduated from law school after four years at night going to Fordham during 9/11 and everything I was dealing wow. with, um, I graduated and I never practiced a day in my life. Not only that, I never even took the bar exam because I wanted to make sure I never practiced a day in my life. Wow. So. You know, a lot of times people think that the die is cast. There's this sort of uh, tractor beam pulling you forward down a path you wish you didn't have to go down. Mm. And so the point of that story is it was one question. And it was a piece of advice and wrote me this wonderful, tender email, this person in India, yeah. about how thank you. It changed my whole perspective. I talked to my parents last night. I was like, great. And I was able to do that within the course of my life, right? Mm. And uh, So the emphasis on mentor is wrong. Mentorship is the is the right perspective. Hmm. And the difference being, it's not just this constant relationship that you go to for everything. It's specific points of advice that you need for specific people. And that's also more realistic, right? Like, oh, for at sure. At the end of the day, you, it's really what you're asking for. Yeah. And if you're actually asking for somebody to take custody of your life, you're going about it the wrong way. Because there is no deity out there who has all the answers, except for Curtis, on <laughs> spirituality. No, but there really is, really is nobody yeah. who's going to be able to get, take custody of your life. Right. And nobody, unless, and it's also an inauthentic relationship. What's the likelihood that you'd reach out to a stranger who's truly going to give you the intimacy you need to take custody of your life? Right, especially if they don't know you, right? They don't know you, right. Yeah. That's what partners are for. And, you know, and so, so, so begin with that question and, 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 and break it down. But that requires a degree of discipline. So then mm. you have to say to yourself, oh, okay, what is the most important question I'm trying to answer next right. to take the next step in my life, which is right. a process people don't often want to go through in business uh, and in their personal lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine a lot of people come to you for business, but I have, you know, for anyone, they could get advice from a friend about relationships. Yeah. Uh, they could get someone else for, for, for health or fitness. And, you know, there's mentors in different areas in your life, I feel. So, 
yeah, it's not it's not this like one and all all in all package that no, you get. No, and even on business, when people come to me, uh, and I give this advice to other people seeking uh, out advice from mentors or business leads, you have to come with something that they can work on and yeah. get their teeth into. If it's a nebulous, non formed idea. Uh, it's unlikely that even a mentor is going to help you take it the rest of the way there. Mm. But if you came to them with a specific fact pattern, that's something they could, you know, get their teeth into. Yeah, totally. So resuming from where you were right after high school, yes. you got into, and then you became the press secretary for Rudy Giuliani. I did. Tell us a little bit about how that progressed from where you were. Rudy Giuliani back then, by the way. <laughs> I <laughs> definitely yeah. know. Yeah, yeah we, so, we don't do politics yeah, science here, but... <laughs> um, no, I uh, I was working as a newspaper reporter. I was a cub reporter. Mm. Uh, but I always loved government and always wanted to get involved. Um, actually, I had a column called the Trib Action Desk. And oh. the purpose of the column was people would send me their problems. And I would take their problems and go after them pretty hard. And oftentimes, they would turn into a big news story. They'd get picked mm. up by the New York Times or the Daily News and whatnot. And so I um, was just deeply involved in New York City politics, cultural life. And I had an opportunity to go work for the mayor's office. Mm. And over the course of several years, while going to law school at night and taking care of my mom, I held different positions. And, uh, and uh, I had left twice to do different jobs. And when I was, um, God, I guess it was 26 years old, wow. I got offered an opportunity to become the press secretary to the mayor. And it was a really tough offer. Uh, I would have been the youngest press secretary in city history. Uh, but I was going to Fordham Law at night, which was already overwhelming. <laughs> My mother, by this point, was in a wheelchair. We were still living in squalor. I was just desperately racing to, you know, to, to get ahead financially. Yeah. Um, and then I got this offer, and I thought, how am I going to take care of her, and how am I going to go to law school and become press secretary to a mayor who works seven days a week yeah. in a city that never sleeps? Like, it's almost inconceivable. However, and this is something important I learned back then, you don't, your moment comes and goes. Mm. Right. You don't get to choose you know, the time those moments come and go. And so when something incredible is in front of you, you oftentimes have to take it and don't think you could sequence it like, oh, I'll get another shot to do this. I'll never get another shot. Right. And two, we were pretty desperate financially and the job was a significant bump in pay. Um, so I took the job. And I remember the, you know, the day I went into work the night before my mother was really sick at this point and she would be up all night long. And she had said, uh, you know, don't go into work. Like, stay home. I don't feel good. And I was like, I, we have one, we have no money left. And two, I'm, I'm press secretary to the mayor of New York. Like, I have to show up today. Yeah. And then uh, I got a call from her around uh, 10 o'clock that day that she had called uh, an ambulance. And by the time I got to the hospital, she had passed away. So for me, like, you know, the biggest leap in my life professionally happened on the same exact, you know, day that uh, she had died, wow. which was which was really tough. But um, I learned a lot from that sequence of events, right? That, that in the end, as much as I thought I could sort of save her, save everything, and, you know, time just ran out. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, sometimes the happiest moments of our lives are juxtaposed against the worst moments of our lives, and sometimes they're within 24 hours, like that day. It's all, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, yeah, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. By the time I got to the hospital at like 12, uh, she had passed away. Um, but, like, I always think, do I regret? Should I have gone to work that day? And I just think I had no choice, which is why I sympathize with people all the time who have to make these tough decisions when they're dealing with such difficult circumstances. Like, I just had no choice. Uh, and we were so poor and things were so desperate um, that I had to go to work. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, she would understand. 
But in a lot of ways, in looking back, it just confirmed, like, hey, no one is going to save us. I mean, look how hard I worked to go from 16 years old as a high school dropout to 26 years old press secretary. Nobody yeah. came along in the interim. I remember going to law school at night. This is some of my most vivid memories. I would sit there with my contracts law book or my torts law book, and I would sit on the curb of the ER while she was inside, another doctor looking at her, and, you know, no progress, no help, and staying there till you know, 3 in the morning, you know, studying law books. Uh, uh, and I, and I think big picture, it gave me a lot of visibility into what people go through mm. when they're powerless and they're in poverty that I will never forget. You know, and it fuels me and motivates me and connects me to people all the time because it's just you're so desperate when you're in those circumstances. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a unique experience that very few people go through. And I imagine it's this flaming fuel that really gets you in the toughest moments. I mean, it's really hard to go tougher than what you face mm. yeah, it's still hard 26. to talk about even all the I imagine. sometimes i'm hard on myself like why is this so difficult to talk about 44 years old but it is and yeah. maybe i'm glad it is like i don't ever want this to just be a story yeah you know that i tell yeah because it's uh not because of my mother i mean um you know may she rest in peace and hopefully she's in a better place it's more about there are people right now who are suffering exactly the same way right so i don't ever want to i don't ever want it to stop being raw because mm -hmm. then i'll stop connecting so yeah. um I don't mean to bring you down, by the way. I feel no, bad. no, this is this <laughs> is great stuff. I mean, how, given that you were at this pivotal point in your life when, you know, when your mom passed, and you were twenty six, so you know, eighteen years later, I, I can't imagine what she must be thinking if she was here today and thinking about all the things that you've accomplished. I mean, what do you think would be going through her mind right now if she saw you today? I think she knew. Mm. I think she knew how it would all you know play out. Yeah. Um, I don't think she'd be surprised. I mean, there are, those are my biggest regrets is that if she had just endured a little bit longer, you know, all the financial resources, everything I could have done would have been relatively easy. And little simple pleasures like when you're when it's interesting when you're when you're that poor, uh, all the things that she never got to do. So she never got to drive a car. She was trying to take lessons when she was, but her knees were fading. Right. She, right. She never got to get on an airplane, like like little things that life would have been so dramatically different. Yeah. So those are the parts I think about. Uh, you know, in terms of professional success, I think I knew she, she knew where it was heading. Mm. So I don't ever regret that. Um, it's more what I could have done. Yeah. 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 I mean, at, at a certain point, there's there's really always something you could have done more. You know, and I think it's like a it can be be a bad uh, loophole to go to go into in many ways because. Sounds like you've done a lot, actually. Yeah, for, I'm at peace with it. I think well, so one of the best things that's happened to me, so let's turn this positive because I feel like I'm really bringing you down along with everybody else. Not at all. No, not no. At all. So, um, so my mother went to Queens College. That was her place that restored her dignity, mm. um, uh, got her GED, went there, and she just became a perpetual student taking useless courses and, 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 and doing really well. So she got a, a BA uh, in urban studies, and then she got a, uh, a master's degree, I think in sociology, and then yeah. she, she loved school so much she decided she was never going to leave and get a master's degree in library science is what she started working on, right? Yeah. So she just loved Queens College so much. It was you know, her, her um, just, just her place. And I mm. remember when she died, uh, I actually took her casket around the school as a way to say goodbye. Uh, and I got the most amazing honor of my life this year. The school asked me to give me the commencement address. It's where, no I, it's where I went to college, too. Yeah, so you, This already happened? This just happened, yeah, wow. a few months ago. It was incredible. Like I felt like I was restoring her to the campus because I got to tell the story yeah. in front of you know 10,000 people. But as I was walking up in a procession, I haven't told this story, um, 
it was amazing. A, a, a gentleman starts heading towards the line and says, can, can you stop for a second? I, I need to tell you something. Uh, and, you know, white hair, looked like he was in his 70s. He reaches across the line and says, I just want to say hello. I'm Dean Savage. I had your mother. She was my student. I have to tell you, she was the best student I ever had. She was amazing. And I said, wait, Dean Savage, you were at the pizza place on Casino Boulevard. I remember you. My mother would talk about you all the time. And here's somebody who had remembered her all these years later. And it gave me a lot of peace. Like, oh, she left a legacy. Because that's one of the hard things, too. And you're poor and somebody dies. You feel like the world just discards your memory. But the fact that he had remembered her all these years later just was incredible. Wow. So, so the so it has a good ending. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. want to bring you back bring you back to that. And the fact that he was he's still alive, like that's that's, he's that's still, still here's crazy. the best part. He was retiring a week later. So I never would so have never would have seen never would have seen oh that my this, God. this professor Dean Savage remembered her all these years. And I remembered him. Like, you know, this well, I wasn't just saying politely. Yeah. I remembered him. I remembered his face even at a moment. Because my mother would bring me to classes when I was a little kid. So and I remember his office was on top of this pizzeria. Oh my God. I remember weird things, which I think was pine tree. Um, crazy. The crazy story. So, you know, and if I'm honest, I wanted to deliver the commencement address at that college. I wanted to be mm. asked one day. I wanted my life to be relevant enough that I would be worthy to do it. Is there and a video clip of this? There is a video clip. That we can, yeah, we can yeah, link yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, It was a, okay. a hard moment. Um, yeah, imagine. But yeah, but the whole speech was uh, called Tacking and just using uh, the metaphor of sailing about how if you're on a sailboat and you need to make progress against the wind, you have to tack. And mm. go left and go right. But if you were on that sailboat, it wouldn't feel like you were making any progress. But if right. you were looking down from the heavens, you would see the boat was moving forward. So I was talking about how that's going to be your life. Yeah. And it may look like may not look like you're making progress, but you're just tacking. It's a and great metaphor. Yeah, yeah, it is a great metaphor. Um, but it was such an amazing moment to think about all these years later, right, that he had remembered her wow. on campus. I mean, that's probably what you were going through after. 26 right yeah. all this stuff happened and you are probably from afar you were making this great progress but i'm sure in your head you're like it probably felt like you're going three steps back but you just didn't realize there was this future ahead of you tell us a little bit about what happened after and you got in from uh you were working as a press secretary and then what made you transition from being in the government into business, which is a completely different world, I imagine. Well, after the September 11th attacks, I was a second employee at the new agency charged with rebuilding Lower Manhattan. There's yeah. no playbook for that. There's no template. Yeah. So I spent two years working on bringing people together, forging consensus, figuring out what will happen on that 16-acre site. It was you know gut-wrenching, as you can imagine. I mean, I was there on the site within an, you know, an hour of the first plane uh, striking the towers, and then yeah. don't leave for two years, right? I moved my apartment to the site, so on Chambers Street. Um, so just very, very heavy, mm. very gut-wrenching. And I had done it for two years, and I said I would stay until we had a plan for the site developed. And it was a spectacular plan. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, it's worth visiting the memorial yeah. with uh, called Reflecting Absence, the two pools. Uh, and then, of course, the Freedom Tower. I still call it the Freedom Tower. 1,776 feet tall. So when that was done, I needed a break. Mm. I needed to transition. And uh, the Jets needed somebody who could help them build a new stadium. And they needed somebody who understood land use and government and PR. And I had all that background mm. uh, and brought it together. So that was my, my start in business. And you find yourself in these positions. And like I always tell people, you don't need to know your end point. You just need to make the next best decision yeah. and be moving in the general direction of where you want to end up. People put too much pressure 
unless you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, which is a very discreet path. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, just know the general endpoint you want to be in. And I like building things. Mm. I love building things. I like building things kind of under duress. I like building things where there's no manual about how to build things. So that's my general direction. Sure. You know, and it started off in life, my own personal life, building yeah. myself up as a dropout and then building in government and then building for the Jets. Uh, but I knew, you know, ever since selling handbags at, for at the flea market or selling flowers, you know, when I was a kid, yeah. that it's much better to be the one who owned the flowers and was wholesaling rather than the kid on the street selling them. So right. I was like, wait, I want to be ownership. And uh, that was my dream. So I spent eight years at the Jets doing almost every job and learning the business from every angle. And then I wanted to go out on my own. Mm. And that's when I, uh, I launched RSC around seven years ago now. Gotcha. With Stephen Ross. With Stephen Ross. Yes, right, who's right. Known for a lot of things, and he's known for real estate, but actually he is one of the most amazing entrepreneurs of our time. But, but mm. you know, he's been not really a public figure his entire life. But yeah. he is just incredibly creative and dynamic and has built all these different companies and, and taken on really complicated projects, and we partnered up. How would you guys connect in the first place? Well, the uh, Dolphins and the Jets sits next to each other at NFL meetings. Gotcha. So I got to know him through the NFL. Gotcha. I had decided – you know, at the Jets, I had everyone's dream job of my own. Ultimately, it was an amazing job, and they were so good to me. They gave me so much responsibility mm. relatively young. But I know that my heart was in being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And then if I didn't get myself uncomfortable pretty quick, I'm probably going to stay forever. Like sitting on a 50-yard line overlooking a practice facility. and Not a bad It gets pretty heavy, right? But yeah. I said if I don't put myself in this position to be uncomfortable, and I had these businesses I wanted to create. So yeah. I, had, I decided I was going to leave the team. And um, ultimately, uh, uh, we got together and decided, hey, if, if uh, uh, you can help me oversee the Miami Dolphins on the business side yeah. and uh, get, that, get it going in the right direction, we'll invest in deals and build companies together. Mm. Uh, that was it. You know, there's no fancy business plan, you know, nothing let's more sophisticated than that. Yeah, they'll just yeah. do something together. And, yeah, we, yeah. and we connected, you know, he, he looks at everything from every different angle and just so incredibly smart and that's how it started and, and mm. version 1.0 of RSC was to build companies from scratch yeah and to incubate uh and, and to back incubation so one of the early ones we backed was resi yeah a uh, competitor to open table which uh, we just sold to amex uh, built a huge international soccer tournament so we just we just got involved in businesses that made sense right. helped launch a communications firm called Daris, which has helped launch uh, some of the best dtc brands in the country so that was version 1.0, and we've iterated and iterated over the time, and mm. that's a pretty big portfolio. Do you think if you didn't have these early, for lack of a better word, traumatic experiences in your childhood where you were constantly uncomfortable, you were constantly put in situations that almost like you had your back to your wall and you had to innovate and figure it out on your own, do you think you'd be the entrepreneur or the builder that you'd be today? Because it, it can be kind of subconsciously uh, addicting to be constantly wanting to do new things i imagine just because that's so comfortable for you or at least now from what you were used to from the childhood yeah there's zero shot i would be where i am right now or who i am right now right because for a simple reason inside me is strong pattern recognition and strong yeah. intuition obviously and a degree of courage um, but I wouldn't have tested it until much later, and I wouldn't have tested it to such an extent. Yeah. And these things take time, right? Like, I couldn't have gone on Shark Tank 15 years ago. 
I would have had to have done all the preceding things, the reaches, as I call them, right? That would have led me to think Shark Tank was the next logical step. Mm. So it's almost, I look at it like a sedimentary rock, right? There needed to be layers and layers and layers underneath before I could make that move. So it's very hard to skip that. So that so maybe by the age of 30, I would have taken my first big unconventional move, quit my job and started a, you know, a lemonade stand or something. Like it would have, I would not be here. Mm. So the, again, back to my point about the benefits of the situation you're in, the trials is always a benefit. The benefit of my trials in that early, as I accelerated everything, you know, I started college when I was 16. I graduated when I was whatever, you know, I guess 20, 23, and started law school right away. And by 26, I was in a position to be Mayor Giuliani's press secretary, right? And because I dropped out of high school at 16, I got a job as a reporter when I was 18, and I won a bunch of journalism awards. So by virtue of accelerating everything, it, it, it led to where I am today. So, yeah. so back to my mom, you know, once you have kids, you start realizing a lot, right? I have kids. My kids are my everything. Yeah. They give you a whole new perspective, even of, even about my relationship with my mom. She, the whole purpose of being a parent is to see your kids off and how proud and happy you are, right? So knowing that the legacy of what we went through led to where I am today, as much as I'm sure she would be happy if we could have avoided it there's pride and happiness and peace that comes with that. Mm. So, but great question. There's no chance I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just one thing led to the other and looking back, maybe it all makes sense, yeah. but it's one thing I do feel passionate about too. Now this is kind of contradictory. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're in a, we're in a society now where we're shaming people who don't have these kinds of stories, right? Yes. Which I think is really unfair. Like you, one shouldn't have to manufacture crisis or vulnerability or trauma. There's nothing wrong with having not had a lot of that. In fact, it's you know it's it's ideal. Yeah. Um, so I'm really strongly against that. Right. Like mm. that. I don't think that people have to have these stories in order to live a life you know well lived. And uh, and and the reality is everyone's gone through something that mattered to them a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying in my case, I couldn't have got here. Other people could have gotten here even if they didn't have the life, right? There's nothing wrong with going to Harvard and sure. having a relatively unperturbed childhood. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, kudos, right? And, and I don't yeah. judge. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I think uh, your story is what makes it interesting, though. Yeah. I think I think there's nothing wrong with agreed. Agreed. People I'm just saying. That. I do. I do find we're now in this race to everybody to share some vulnerability. Yes. Right. And some trauma. When I meet somebody who had a pretty good child and they're happy and they love their parents, I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Right? Like, hey, <laughs> I bet I bet you yeah. had a lot less dysfunction in your life than I have. I imagine. Right. Right. Because right? those things come with a cost. There's yeah. A lot of things you have to sort of work through. And, yeah. And. Uh, and so that's I'm just giving a little shout out to the sure. to the uh, peaceful calm upbringing. <laughs> and how does it how does it affect how you raise your children now because of the childhood that you did have? That's a great question. You have a really good question. <laughs> you should do this. But you are doing this. Yeah. Uh, um, I uh, I I try to balance it out. Um, I think there's a tendency. There's two two directions you can go in. As somebody who's gone through what I've gone through, uh, you either want to replicate it and make sure their life is really artificially hard, right. which makes no sense because you can't you can't make it a contrivance, right? Or you want to shield them from every possible bad thing that could happen. So where I end up is um, I love being around them. It brings me such joy, and I want them to have the freedom to be to go in their own direction, right? Mm. Like I felt like a lot of those choices were made for me because right. I had such heavy responsibilities. So I'd say I really want to give them the freedom to make their own decisions mm. and not uh, not dictate the course of their life. So that makes me perhaps overly protective over autonomy. Right. I wanted to be autonomous, you know, when I was a kid. Um, and then I think I'm very acutely aware of what an impact I have as a dad, having mm. not had that role in my life, right? Having become almost a parent, you know, when I was 10 years old, yeah. I, um, really want uh, them not to feel that way. 
So mm. those are kind of areas uh, I think I focus on. Yeah, we're always the problem is when you're a parent, the pendulum swings too far the other direction. I'm sure I'm screwing all sorts of things up. That'll be in therapy, you know, because <laughs> I overcorrected somewhere. But right, uh, right, whatever. Right, our kids are gonna go through a period where they hate us anyway. So sure, sure. I'm at peace. Well, you were almost on this left spectrum where it was really, really tough, and I imagine you're trying to find this like hybrid of being tough and also being there for them. So well, well, my children have am- I'm lucky. My children have amazing values. Yeah, my wife has amazing values. I like to think like, what well, what is it that makes a kid spoiled? And I think it, uh, a lot of it is do they de- define their own self worth by the material resources they have right. at their disposal? So as long as you inculcate in them values that don't define their sense of self worth by their possessions, which starts at the top, right? Right. Running around and trying to feel like you're somebody because you have X, Y, Z, then I think you'll generally be okay. So hmm. I, I like to think we do not define ourselves by what we have because we came from dirt. We'll end at dirt. Sure, so, sure. Um, I work hard at making that the point. I always tell my son all the time this. I say, uh, nobody's anybody and everybody's somebody. So, um, but I don't need to tell him that. He, he, he already has it in him. Yeah. So I, I can't take a lot of credit. He, he, they, they, were, they, were, they, were born, they were born well. Yeah, it's it's difficult because it's not like you can artificially put this like tough environment on them because that's where they were that's how they were born at this point. So it's not like you can just put them out on the streets or anything like that. Nor just you to want make to. That's right. exactly. like they're not like your little science experiment. Yeah, yeah, right? I yeah. Mean, if everybody's honest, I would have had to have a, a more regulated upbringing. So would my parents. So right. To think that I'm going to prosthetically install crisis and trauma. It, it doesn't make sense, but mm. you do want them to have good values, and yeah. good values sort of start at the top. Sure, so I sure. I like to think I focus on values. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um, I want, I do want to pick your brain a little bit about the business side and investing side because that's sure. a whole different part of you. Uh, you know, we were talking yeah, a we lot did like about a whole episode of Doctor Phil, a little bit of personal stuff, to, uh, going to therapy to the a little bit. Yeah. Um, but going back to Stephen Ross, I'd love to know a little bit about you know what are some of the lessons that you've learned from all these years of working with him because, I mean, the, what he's able to accomplish, oh, I, I imagine, is just... All yeah. right, so I've learned so much and have so much gratitude for all the opportunities he gave me, but I'd say the two biggest lessons I've learned, something he told me very early on, don't be a grasshopper. And I used to always hate that. Like, what do you mean a grasshopper? Yeah, what does that mean? But like, to break it down, don't be somebody who jumps from one thing to the next, right? Get seduced by the next big shiny object. Finish what you started. And and it goes along with something he always says, too, is nothing goes up in a straight, straight line. So as an entrepreneur, with, you know, a hint of ADD, you might want to move on to the next thing or conclude that this thing is screwed because it's not playing out as you expected. Right. Steve has a tremendous tolerance and patience for letting things kind of play out. So um, you know, early on, he would say, don't be a grasshopper. You know, sit with it and, uh, and work it out. The second most important point I've learned – and this goes in the area of winners are very hard to come by. So if you spot a winner and you see a winner, go deep and have the courage of your conviction to go, to go deep. And even if it didn't work out for some intervening event that you didn't forecast, you'll still feel better having gone deep. And he would always say to me that the, the less you bet, the more you lose when you win. The less mm. you bet, the more you lose when you win, which is brilliant. And yeah. now that I've been at it for a long time, you know what my number one regret is? That I didn't go deep on my convictions mm. that I would go wide instead of sort of going deeper into something because the winners are really hard to come by. So a really important lesson and I never would have kind of come across it without him. It's so yeah. entirely true. And now in this, in, you know, version Matt, you know, whatever I am 5.0 uh, in this investment career, 
I am way more focused on having the strength of my convictions that when I see something, I work on it, go deeper and deeper and deeper hmm. and deeper. Um, on the flip side, I think I have a lot of patience to work through human problems. One of the benefits of growing up the way I grew up is I have a lot of empathy for what people go through. I realize that usually 95% of the time when something is wrong with a company, it starts with people at the top and the need to unlock value and get them unstuck. Right. Like it's, we like to think that it's about the spreadsheets and about, you know, it's about the PowerPoints. It's really always about a person. Sure. And value can be unlocked by working on a person. So one of the reasons I talk so openly on this podcast, anywhere else, anybody who asks, about my upbringing is because I think if you could break people down and let them open up about their vulnerability, you can get to the heart of the problem. Mm. Right. And most of the things we grapple with stem from, you know, inner demons, uh, personal relationships, childhood something that we're not contending with uh, that, that, that torments us. So I feel like I put a lot of my energy in getting people unstuck and working mm. on what's blocking value and then unlocking that value. Um, but yeah, uh, Steve has taught me a lot over the, over the years. Yeah. I mean, particularly about the advice about going deep, it sounds like his, that main thesis takeaway is that you need to be ready to go on offense when you have the opportunity. So it's like an offensive mindset versus a defensive mindset. Do you think, that uh, I guess it's fair to say that before you're saying you were on a defensive mindset, do you mm -hmm. think that's because of back in the childhood yeah. when you were in childhood, you were you really didn't have much at that point, so you I imagine you were afraid to lose a lot of right, different now you're things. Really Doctor Phil territory. I, I actually think that is a very astute observation. Yeah, when you yeah. when you are when the amygdala is flashing in the size of a grapefruit because your flight or flight is telling you to run. Yeah, um, you do tend to play. You want to uh, mitigate the downside for sure, and you want to play defense to make sure that you're safe, right? And, yeah, uh, and the sooner that you could pivot away from that and play offense, the better the quality of your decisions. I always mm. say. I don't care what you say. I don't think people make great decisions out of fear. When people say, oh, I need to, fear is a motivator. Fear is the way that uh, when your backup is up against the wall, you do see things you can't otherwise see yeah. when you're complacent, right? But it's not, it's a good fuel for a moment in time. It's a catalyst. But you'd much rather play from a, a hand of strength. And mm. you make much better decisions when you're playing offense, I believe, yeah. from a place of peace. So whatever it is you need to feel safe in life, and ideally, you want to define that very narrowly because the broader you define it, the more elusive it'll be, right? Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, what do I really need, absolutely need to feel good and safe? Hopefully, it's very, very small. Yeah. Um, then you could play offense. And, yeah, Steve would teach me that all the time. Like, you, you, you can't play defense. Play, you got to play offense. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, fear is good for getting from zero to one, I imagine, because it, it is a motivator. But at a certain point, you have to be able to switch that mindset into like a more of an abundance mindset. Yep. Apart from what Steve has told you, how did you cultivate that mindset of being able to go on offense instead of being on the on the defense? It's hard for a lot of people. I think so. it's been. I don't think this is even a recent development. It's not. It's like a relatively recent development. In the last mm. few years, I've been working on it and getting to a place where you, you like I said, the the key is to define what you need narrowly. Yeah. And as that comes into focus in your life, the easier it is. So in my case, you know, I have the best wife you can imagine. She's my best friend. I have the best kids in the world that you can imagine. I don't care about legacy anymore. I don't even like worry mm. about what my epitaph says. I already know what it says, and, and I know what I want it to say. And yeah. so um, the things I need are more are narrowly defined, mm. uh, and that enables me to play offense. And that's where the challenge is. It's not about getting what you need. It's about defining what you need narrowly. Right. Uh, and that's right. enabled me to switch to offense. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I guess you define your worst case scenario and exactly. everything else is an upside. Everything else for is you. upside, you know. And also, I had um, cancer, which we haven't touched upon, but I had cancer uh, uh, when I was probably 32. Oh, wow. And uh, testicular cancer. And for a few days there, I was like, damn, like, uh, this could end really poorly, you know. Right. And, um, w- and I was okay, ultimately, went through radiation and whatnot. Um, but one of the things, you know, I, I took from that is that nothing really matters. Most of what you think about does not hold up against the juxtapos- juxtaposition of imminent death. Yeah. And yet we live in a state where we are going to die, perhaps, perhaps today. But we're completely alienated from that fact because we think it's a morbid thought when, in fact, it's a liberating thought. Mm. If you realize in the end it is going to we are going to end up in the same place, then most of what you think about in a given day is nonsense. And so it's kind of relieving. It's why people, you know, Bhutan think about death five times a day because Mm. it just relieves you of the anxiety about this great unknown. Yeah. And not much matters. So I used to call it zero time in those three days when I uh, when I had my diagnosis, had surgery. Uh, which is pretty like 24 hours you're in surgery and yeah. it's a pretty intimate body part to be getting you know cut off yeah, yeah i can't even imagine yeah, no, you don't want yeah. to imagine we all go into details i just painted a picture for you but but um for those three days i called it zero time because i'm like i yeah. felt like i was floating in a, in, a, in a zero gravity environment because nothing i thought about you know the day before being diagnosed mattered anymore I used to look through the New York Times brownstone sections. Like, I can't wait to get a brownstone in Brooklyn Heights. Like, when I, you know, when I make it, I'm like, oh wait, there is no brownstone. Fuck, yeah. Nothing matters. Wow. And so, but in that moment of clarity, I decided, you know, you realize what does matter. Oh, did I do right by my kids? Right. That's the number one thought. And the second yeah. thought is, you know, damn, I wish I had traveled more. Shit, I wish I had seen the world. Like, which is interesting, right? This desire to be exposed and yeah. to float and be free. I try to hold on to that. It's hard the further away I get, but yeah. I have an app. I talk about this, uh, which I love. It's called We Croak. We Croak. And, yeah, yeah okay. We Croak. Okay. If you'd like, I don't, I don't invest in it. I have nothing to do with it. Never met the founder, but I yeah. like to talk about it. Cool. Five times a day, it reminds me I'm going to die. In various clever quotes, are uh, put differently oh, wow. to catch your attention, and try it. You'll find when that goes off. My kids think this is completely crazy, by the way. But when it goes off, the low, the peace that sets over you, and you read it like, oh right. Why am I worried about that traffic? Wow. Why am I worried about that meeting? I forgot. And then what's interesting, too, is we all have the same shared condition. Yeah. We are all going to die, and we none of us know where we're going. Some have a strong belief, right? But we all there's no consensus. <laughs> and yet we don't talk about it. Mm. And so I love this app because it's bringing something out from the dark and into the light and creating the opposite reaction that you would expect by being reminded about it. Interesting. So yeah. it just puts everything into perspective exactly. for you. Damn. Very cool. Um. So I, w- I want to close it off with the uh, question that we, I guess we initially talked about when we we're talking about how rare it is to have uh, someone like yourself that's started out as an entrepreneur and you've gotten into the investing side of the tank with, with Shark Tank and with RSE. So, you know, I'm generally it's one or the other, right? So I'm curious to know for, particularly for entrepreneurs, I think that are generally listening to this versus entrep- uh, investors, what are some of the things that they can learn what you've learned on the investing side that an entrepreneur that generally tends to be this like single-minded focused, they are a little bit more um, uh, risk-taking, I guess, in, in that sense. Sometimes it doesn't end well, whereas an investor is a little bit more calculated. But what are some of the things that you've learned or advice that you can give to entrepreneurs that uh, you've learned as an investor that they mm-hmm. can take away with? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I somebody told me this the other day. Uh, which I found startling that you know pri- in private equity there's a bias against you know operators 
because mm. the, uh, presume that you know invest investors are you know are a uh, are an expertise and a profession, right? And there's yeah. different skill set than being an operator. You know, I couldn't disagree more. Mm. I think that uh, when you're an operator and you've operated a business, you understand that nothing plays out the way you expected it. You have a reasonable sense of what people need and how they don't behave according to your plan and your PowerPoint and just all the issues that come up. So I personally think every investor who's going to make it a career should have a stint as an operator. It doesn't mean you need to found your own business, but it needs to, means that you have to get your hands dirty. Mm. And to learn the most important thing is that nobody does exactly what they say they're going to do, and nothing works out exactly as the way you planned it. Right. right. I mean, I know it sounds so obvious, but when you're an investor and you haven't gone through that, then your expectations are going to be unreasonable. Yep. And and I think the most successful investors are the one who truly are value add. Everyone says they are. What does it mean to be value add? Honestly, number one is that you're empathetic. Mm. You're empathetic from a place of experience. Yeah. Oh, I'm dealing with a CEO and we we doubled the number of units in, in 18 months. And now the system is stressed because we didn't scale accordingly. Well, like, of course. But as an investor, if you hadn't gone through that, now you want to see the scale, you want to see the double number of units, and you're holding them accountable because they don't have the management team in place. Well, what do you think was going to happen, right? Yeah. So when you're an operator, you realize, okay, you you race, 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 you pause, and you fix, correct, mitigate, race, 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 pause, right. fix, correct, mitigate. And if you haven't gone through that cycle, you just don't know. So I think for anybody who wants to get in a career in investing, like go to a startup that's a mess and and go there early and work on everything. I mean, one yeah. of the coolest jobs I ever had, uh, one of the times I left Giuliani, was going to Cosmo.com, K-O-Z-M-O. Uh, yeah, okay. so, so it was an internet company. It's so funny telling you this, like it's an ancient story. It's like, you know, <laughs> lost. Yeah. Uh, internet company, 1999, who's going to deliver everything to you in under an hour. Wildly successful. Had raised like $300 million or oh, something. Wow. Yeah, had... had uh, uh, businesses in 10 cities and guaranteed everything that you wanted in under an hour. They had these warehouses and people would ride on bicycles to deliver it to you. Wow. You know, uh, uh, movies, ice cream, anything you wanted. Um, but I, I, I was there very, very early uh, and watched all these different things plays out. But I've learned some of the most important um, lessons in business from that period, including in the waning days of the company. And I had all these stock options, and I was going to be rich and whatnot. And I had decided I made a I made a, made a judgment that it was going to not end well. Yeah. Decided to leave. When I was leaving, there were a couple of executives that were really impressive from 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 significant companies who had quit their big impressive jobs to join us. At the huh. moment, I had made the decision to leave, and so and it and 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 ended up shutting down. And not judging them, but my takeaway from that was like. Don't outsource your judgment to somebody who's a supposed expert when they are not an expert in this area. Mm. They were coming from mature companies and probably had bought in a bit to the hype, and they had decided to go there. So what's my point, net-net? Getting the experience in an operating business will make you a much better investor than the, than the opposite. Mm. Like, I, I just... I just think it's so, so, so valuable. Gotcha, gotcha. And going back to how you developed your own intuition, you decided to leave when everybody was staying. There was more executives from really impressive companies coming in. You really went against the grain there. Yeah, and I, mean, not, not, and I don't want to aggrandize. There were other people going too. It's sure. just that I remember studying the decision, like, oh, I'm leaving my equity on the table, but some people are coming. Yeah, right, and it's I'm been going. hard. It, right, it was kind of hard. Um, and again, it was amazing. I love that company. I still think it should exist today. And it's yeah. kind of obviously it exists in Postmates and everything else. But just the point of the story is I, I would not have had that experience if I had just been an investor and had not been an operator. 
Mm. Right. And the most important, again, I go back to the original point. I think sometimes investors, they, they don't want it to be about people because people problems are really hard. Yeah. And we like to find these perfect constructs of a human. You go into the computer and you type them up. They have perfect judgment. They have no personal problems. They never get divorced. <laughs> they, they don't have, you know, they never call them late. They're totally fine. Yeah. And they know how to scale intuitively, but they know how to manage people too. Mm. You know, uh, and they're great at raising money, <laughs> but they're great at deploying it. So if you have been an operator, you realize that person doesn't exist and yeah. you make the most with what you have and you take the person as they come. Yeah. So that's yeah. my screed. Yeah, no kidding. And often the most idiosyncratic entrepreneurs are the ones that do the best, right? Yeah. They're the ones that you never would have thought would have succeeded yeah. And I've in yet this to meet field. a non-idiosyncratic entrepreneur. So there you go. They, they are the best. So by being an operator, you'll cultivate your empathy and you'll be a better investor. Mm. Well, hey, man, I could talk to you for hours, honestly, but I do want to respect your time with this. From Dr. Phil to the profit to Shark Tank. We'll jump all over the place (laughs) here. So I do want to uh, have you leave one actionable takeaway for the people that are listening. For generally the people that are listening are the ones that are just starting their businesses or they are aspiring to do something, whether it's in business, in the creative fields. So what's what's one actionable takeaway that you could give them to help them get from zero to one or at least one to one to two? Okay. I like this. Uh, I will take you back to McDonald's. Yes, right. let's do it. In, in Where are we starting? Bayside, Queens. Yes. I tend to think that um, sometimes people have, have the, are in a job they don't want to be doing and wish they didn't have to do, and they're looking past that job to the next job. When I was at McDonald's, you know, I was 13 years old, and I remember the first time I was asked to go ahead and work in the party room, and I was told that my job would be scraping the gum off the bottom of the chairs. And I thought, like, this is kind of what, – what further indignity must I endure at this mm. stage of my life? I'm 13 years old, and I'm going to spend my time, right? And, uh, and I remember one time I kind of flaked on that job, and I watched a woman at a party get up, and she had gum, gum congealed to her dress, you know, and sort of stretched out. And I was like, oh, I guess that job mattered, you know, and I sort of Uh-oh. sheepishly looked away. From that moment on, I would make it a game, and I would scrape as much gum as humanly possible, as fast as humanly possible as those little rotten kids could put under the seat, right? And, and I would do it day in and day out with a sense of pride because I had seen the consequence, right? Mm. And, and I remember I was so damn good at scraping gum that the, that the uh, manager of the entire place made me the manager of the party room at like 14 years old. And it was the first time I realized that if you make yourself indispensable at whatever you're doing right now, somebody's going to recognize that gleam of greatness in you, and they're going to give you the next job. And I think people, unfortunately, look past the job they're at and assume it's irrelevant. They don't see the role that it plays in the big picture, and they don't have faith that they're going to be discovered. So my first piece of advice is make yourself indispensable at whatever it is you're doing. But my second piece of advice is if you do that and you are not being recognized, quit. Do hmm. not be afraid to quit. Do not hope that one day somebody's going to come along and give you the recognition you deserve. Have the faith in yourself that you are great. And so it's a feedback loop. So I'm not asking you to toil away in obscurity forever doing that menial gum scraping job. But I am saying start there. If you don't get the recognition you deserve, then don't be afraid to move on. Golden advice. Thank All you right. so much for being on. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. Great. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.